Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Hi, just a reminder, we're doing these talks live on Zoom every week. So if you'd like to be part of it as it goes on, and there are questions and answers at the end, you can ask a question if you like. Uh, we'd love to have you and become part of the community. Just subscribe at Torah on iTunes.com. Okay. Uh, hi. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Um, we're, we're starting with Parsha's Breshis again, which is fantastic. And, and I think that I talk about Shabbos Breshis all, all, all year long. Um, just the beginning of the Torah creation, the fact that that, that there even is a world, the fact that we even exist at all, the fact that God is constantly creating the world and us. It's, um, it's a, just, you can wrap your, try to wrap your mind around it forever. It's just, it's endlessly fascinating, um, because it's dealing with, it's dealing with the here and now and just, just the mysteries of life and the, and the, the infinity of, of God and just all, everything at once. So, so you've got it all together with um with with creation and of course we just have the the Shabbos of creation and leading up to it we have the the finishing of the Torah Simchas Torah so we just we just finished the Torah and we just restarted the Torah um, and uh, and I had at the at the Happy Meeting in Los Angeles I, I one of my jobs is to auction off the the Aliyahs. Um, and it's a very special honor to, to, to be able to have the, the last Aliyah and the, and the first Aliyah of the Torah to be called up and to say the blessing over the finishing of the Torah and, and, the, and the start of the Torah. So the, 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 the special Aliyah calling up for the, for the end of the Torah um, is called Chassan Torah. And Chassan, you would translate as a groom, like a, under the chuppah, when a, when a man and woman get married, it's, they're called the chassan and kala. So, so the chassan is the groom and, um, the person who gets to say the, the last blessing over the finishing of the Torah, it's called chassan Torah. So, so I was auctioning it off and, and I wanted to, you know, kind of try to communicate on some level the, the importance of it. And this image kind of came to mind as I was auctioning it. And it's the following. Now, we talk about the Torah being black fire on white fire. So now what I'm going to ask you to imagine is, is just imagine the, the very last column of the Torah. So you have, you have just a whole kind of line of black fire there, right? And then you have like after that, after the Torah ends, you have like a chunk of white space there, you know, because it doesn't just, the scroll doesn't just end on the last black line, but there's a nice little portion of just sort of like the, the end of the Torah scroll itself, right? So you've got the end of the black fire and then you've got the, the white fire. And of course, just in the here and now, if you want to hear what that, what that means in sort of like more, um, relatable terms. So black fire are, are those things that you can see um, in, in terms of reality. Those, those things that are manifest and real, your hands, your feet, you know, this table, the walls, things like that. That's, that's the black fire. Um, planets, right? Anything that, that's actually tangible. The white fire are all the spiritual realms that are there, 
but you just can't see them. They exist. They're all there. You, you, you just can't see them. Um, and, and the reality is, is that we really see a very tiny percentage of what actually exists in the world. You know, one of my favorite facts is that um, theoretical physics, quantum physics, as well as advanced mathematics, both postulate dimensions that are unseen. And, and I love that because the idea that um, there are realms beyond our realm, dimensions beyond our dimension, used to be the stuff of pure speculation or, or belief or religion. And now you have the most advanced academic minds in the world in interdisciplinary fields, physics and mathematics, both saying that dimensions exist beyond our present one. So, so I love that because it's another example of science still catching up with Torah. And of course, the Rambam says famously that, that science and Torah can't disagree. And, and it's simply because the one who created the world created science and Torah. In other words, it has the same author. How, why would they disagree if they have the same author? So the Rambam says that that if they do disagree, then either you have to look at the science again, or you have to try to re-understand what the passage in the Torah is saying. In other words, you, if they disagree, you got one of the two things wrong. So you have to look at it again, because God made them both. So, so the reason why I think that's such a knockout punch or such a, you know, sort of an invigorating thought is, is, is because... Modern society wants to pit science against Torah, and they want to say one is right and the other is wrong. But if you go back to the notion of a god, well, why would why would they disagree? All science is is a is a quantitative way of describing what God is doing. That that's all science is, right? So so the idea that science is some sort of independent kind of like a realm is is silly because everything is subsumed within the oneness of God. Okay. So now let's get back to this bit of imagery that I wanted to relate to you. So so the black fire, that's everything that that's quantifiable. That's everything you can see from molecules or atoms um all the way up to galaxies and nebula and all, all the rest, okay? That's all black fire. White fire that's all that exists, which is in dimensions that are beyond what the eye can see, what can be measured, right? Um, it's out there, but, but it's just, it's, it's beyond. And um, there's actually way more white fire than there is black fire. Like I say, we're just seeing a, a small amount. Um, I want to get back to this imagery, but, but I have to tell you something else first. One of my favorite teachings from Reb Shlomo, he said, you know what this world is like? You're looking through a keyhole and you see a knife is raised over another person and, and you say, a murder is about to take place. But, but what's actually going on? It's, it's an operating room and, and it's a doctor who's cutting open a person in order to save their life. So, so, I love that because it's it's an example of how we see just a, a tiny little piece of what's actually going on. 
Um, and so that's, that's another way of expressing this thought of the, the black fire, that which is visible being just a very small piece of the white fire, the spiritual realms that are out there that we, that are just a little bit beyond our perception, but they're there, they're there, they're present. Okay. So with that in mind, imagine at the end of the Torah, you've got the last column of black fire, and then there's a section of white fire afterwards. And what I was thinking when I was sort of auctioning off this aliyah, and by the way, I did such a good job auctioning the aliyah that I bought it myself. So, so this, this next thought, I don't know if it's going to be compelling to you, but it sure was compelling to me, um, is I said, imagine you're standing on the beach, right? And you're looking at the ocean. So it's sort of like the end, the end of one world and the beginning of another, if you will, right? I said, that's kind of like the end of the Torah. That's, that's the last column of black fire. It's us standing on the beach. And you know what the ocean is? The ocean is an ocean of white fire. That is the white fire that's just in front of us. And on the other side of that is Parshas Breshis. The Torah is about to begin again after this sea, after this ocean of white fire. Now, that was, um, that was on Simchas Torah, which was in, uh, that was last Sunday, at least uh, outside of Israel, that was last Sunday. And now, um, you know, because of COVID and everything like that, uh, I stopped going to the mikvah before Shabbos. I, I really loved doing that. And because I was just concerned for, you know, safety and, and whatnot. And then it kind of came to a point where it's sort of like, I want to go to the mikvah. So, but I don't want to go to the mikvah, but I do want to go to the mikvah. Well, what am I going to do? So I started going to the ocean. And I've been driving out the last month or so to um, Manhattan Beach. Uh, it's a short ride from Los Angeles where I live. And you just kind of walk out into the ocean. And this past Shabbos, so after auctioning off Chassan Torah, right? With that amazing imagery, I think, right? You're just kind of standing on the edge of the beach with the ocean in front of you of white fire. As I'm driving to the beach, I think maybe there's a fire. You know, we've had a lot of fires out in California. Why? Because as I'm driving toward the beach, I notice like there's just all this white smoke everywhere. And then as I drove deeper into the smoke, I realized there isn't a fire. There isn't any smoke. It's it's this fog. And since I've been going to the to the beach the last month or so, I haven't seen anything like this before. And I actually got to the beach and it was exactly what I had described. I'm standing on the edge of the beach and the water was one white cloud of white fire. <laughs> That's what the ocean was. And, and it was amazing. It was like, wait, I, this is what I described. It's what I described a week ago. It was amazing to be living it, you know? Right, especially right Erev, Parshas Breshis, right? As we were about to get to the other side. And 
I walked into this cloud, this white fire of the ocean, and toiled, you know, did the, did the mikvah and came back. And it's amazing just to imagine it and then just to actually see it. Um, I'm reminding myself of one of my favorite stories. It's in the Gemara. Um, I believe it was Rabbi Yochanan, who's the head of the whole Talmud project in in Israel. You know, which and the Talmud, the Yerushalmi Talmud, is considered even higher than the Talmud Bavli, right? The Babylonian Talmud. And so Rabbi Yochanan was the head of it, and he was giving over something very special to his students about how, in the end of days, the the walls around Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, are going to be made out of, you know, giant precious stones like pearls. And there was a student who was listening of his who was like very dubious, like, you know, pearls are pretty small. And you're talking about pearls the size of walls and gates and things like that. By the way, I think this is where we get the notion of the pearly gates of heaven. By the way, I think it comes from this. Um, anyway, sometime later, this student uh, was, was traveling and, and, and came back. And he was very excited to tell Rabbi Yochanan the following. He said, I was aboard a ship. He said, and I had a vision of the angels. And they were working on exactly what you described. These giant walls made of these pearls. Like, it, it was amazing. It was, and, it, and it, was, it was what you said. And, and uh, Rabbi Yochanan looked at him and said, fool, you had to see it in order to believe it? And I love that because I was so shocked the first time I read it. I thought he was going to go, oh, come here, let me give you a hug. You know, like, you actually saw it, that's so awesome. But no, it was like, fool, you had to see it in order to believe it? So, you know, we're, for, we're so fortunate. We have something that we call the Masora. The Masora is our precious heritage. All these Torah teachings that have been handed down from parent to child since Mount Sinai. And what's, what's so amazing is as um, society gets increasingly complicated and more technologically advanced, you would think that methods of authentic, authentication would become more advanced as well. But ironically, what's happening is, is that methods of forgery are actually becoming more and more advanced. Um, you can Photoshop any, um, any, any picture. Used to be that the, the greatest proof that you could actually show someone is a photograph of an event happening. Now, photographs can be easily manufactured. Um, now they have something even more uh, pernicious, even more evil, which is these, they call them these deep fake um, AI uh, designed videos where you can put someone else's face on someone in a video and then it looks like that that person actually is doing things that they never did in a million years. So now this is even more proof, right? You don't just have a photograph of someone. You actually have a video of someone doing it. Complete forgery. Total forgery. Um, so the irony of this is that what then becomes the, the, greatest, the greatest transmission of truth 
is that a trusted parent's telling the child that they love a piece of information that they heard from their trusted parent, that they heard from their trusted parent. And that's what our tradition is all the way back to Mount Sinai. So in other words, in other words, we have the, the greatest, truest transmission of truth. And um, that we'll never find better than that. Even as, and as technology advances, our appreciation of the, of the simplest most direct form of communication actually becomes enhanced. It's, it's very interesting. It's, it's somewhat ironic, but it's, it's very beautiful that we are the, 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 the recipients of, of, of such a thing. You know that the Vilna Gon, one of the things the Vilna Gon did, there was actually a practice among Rebbe's and Sadikim, which was to go into Galus. That means, Galus means exile. Very interesting practice. You, you don't see this in, in today's uh, society anymore, especially in the Jewish world, but it, it used to be something that was done. What, what holy people would do, and the Vilna Gon was one of them, um, many of the Hasidic Rebbe's did this as well, is that they would leave their home, they would leave their families, and they would travel from town to town in, in abject poverty. They would take nothing with themselves, and they would just go out, and they would they would travel. They would they would be in exile. And part of part of the idea on a spiritual level was that they were to experience the exile of Hashem's shechina, of Hashem's godly presence in this world, because God, as long as the Jewish people are in exile, God, so to speak, is in exile as well. And there's an aspect of Himself, what we call the shechina. Which, which is in exile with the Jewish people. The Rishon Rebbe um, was like a king in Israel. He was a descendant of David Amalek, King David. In fact, he had a special bone on his forehead um, that they said that King David had in order to keep his crown in place. And the Rishon Rebbe, who was a direct descendant, had this, had this bone um, on his forehead as well. And and he was famous for, for trying to restore the glory of the of of the of the, of the dynastic line of of David and Melech. Um, we know that Mashiach will will descend from from King David as well. Um, and so he had a golden carriage, and he would have all sorts of things made of gold. In fact, his shoes, I think, were made of gold. But he himself didn't participate in, 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 in any of the, the pleasures of these things. In fact, the story is told that, you know, he was in Russia, which is, you know, bitter cold. And they tell the story one time that he was wearing these, these golden shoes and he was walking through the snow and he left a trail of blood on the snow because there were no bottoms to his shoes. The idea being that all of this glory that he was manifesting, was just to inspire others, but not to glorify himself. He himself did not benefit from it at all. And this trail of blood, these tracks of blood on the snow while he's wearing golden shoes, right, is it's pretty intense, right? Pretty striking. This ridiculous rumor um, came about. I heard from Reb Shlomo how it happened. The, 
Well, I'll tell you what the result of the rumor is, and then I'll tell you how it what happened. The Rishner Rebbe was arrested by the by the Tsar for plotting an overthrow of the Russian government. They saw his the, the kingly way that he was comporting himself, and they became suspicious of him. But that wasn't the real story. Here's the real story. Right? There are a lot of rich people that they don't accuse of overthrowing the government, especially the Rishon Rebbe, who wasn't benefiting from any of this. It was just to give glory to the Torah. The, the Tsar was, was traveling through a town. Well, I'm getting ahead of the story. The Rishon Rebbe was traveling. And when the Rishon Rebbe was traveling, and it was at nighttime, the people from all these villages heard that he was approaching, and they gathered outside, even at the night, with lit candles as a way of honoring him and showing how much they loved him because he was greatly, greatly beloved. In fact, he was really considered like the dean of the Rebbe's at his time. All the Hasidic masters came to visit the Rishon Rebbe. And, and so as he would pass through these villages, the, the people of the village would gather even at night with these lit candles as a display of love. And the Tsar was traveling sometime afterwards and there was like one person with a candle. And it was so embarrassing because the, the czar was hated. Who, who likes the czar? And, and, and the, the czar came out and, and the person told him, oh, you should have seen what kind of greeting the Rishna Rebbe got. And then this kind of got into the czar's head. Uh, the Rishna Rebbe wants to overthrow me. Right? It's all paranoid madness. Anyway, why am I telling you this story? Because the original Rebbe was thrown in prison in some dank Russian hellhole. And when they finally got him out, you know what he said? That his greatest sorrow was being in that dungeon? He said, my greatest sorrow was that I had to pull the Shekhinah, God's presence, down into this horrible place. So, so the Rebbes would go out in exile and they would experience, what, what is it like for, for God's presence to be in exile in this world? And while the Vilna Gon was traveling around, what he would do is, he would go to various places and he would look at manuscripts of the Talmud, handwritten manuscripts. And he would, because he had memorized the entire Talmud, remember before, um, I don't know if people still do this, but when I was growing up, still people did this. Like if a, there is a child genius, like a, the parents would, with great pride would say, he's a regular Einstein, right? That's the highest compliment you could give your child. Like he's like Einstein, you know? But before then, it was, he was like the Vilna Gon. He's like, a, like, like, that's who they would compare you to. And because he, he, he knew everything, seemingly. Not everything, but, you know, pretty close. And he had the entire Talmud memorized. And one of my favorite stories is he was staying in someone's house um, during this time when he was in Galus and putting himself in exile. And, of course, he traveled anonymously. Everyone, all the Rebbes would travel anonymously because they didn't want to be treated like anyone special to really experience 
the, 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 the fullness of exile. And the Vilna Gon was staying in this person's house, and when the, in the morning the he 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 thanked his host, and the host had some books, and there was one particular book was that was missing. I forgot which book it was, but it was missing the last four pages. And the Vilna Gon said to him, "And I want you to know, I filled in those last four pages for you." <laughs> Can you imagine? He had this book. Who knows what book it was? But he he had everything in his mind, including this book memorized. And he wrote the last several pages by hand for him. Anyway, still getting to the point of all this. Um, the Vilna Gon would find old editions of, of, of the Talmud. And, and, and he was putting together this... this um, uh, authoritative version, this corrected version of the Talmud, right? And, and, and so when it came, so he was looking at all the different versions during his travels. And when it came time for him to make an actual change in what was the accepted text at that, at that time, right? So this is in the 1700s. Um, the Talmud was finished codified about 1,200 years before then, right? So there was, you know, a version floating around. So when it came time for him to update and to correct that accepted edition, and that could just mean changing one letter or changing one word, he would fast that day. Now, to me, that, that, that made a tremendous impact on me when I heard that. That the idea that he was going to amend the oral law, right? The, this is not the five books. This is, you know, this is the oral law, which was eventually written down. But if he was going to change one letter, he full-on fasted that day. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that is to go back to the early earlier point about the fact that we have this Masora. We have this this tradition that's been handed down to us from parent to child from Mount Sinai. We were eyewitnesses to these events and we passed it down, beloved parent to child, to the point where if there was the slightest alteration, it didn't come from the fact that, move aside, let me correct it. I, I, I believe me, trust me, I know, I know. I know. I traveled around. I checked. I know. No, God forbid. It, it was done with such reverence and such yira, such fear and awe of heaven to, to change one letter. So, so we're very lucky. We're very, 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 very lucky to have this awesome, awesome gift which is the Torah. So, so with that in mind, having traveled, we've just traveled over this ocean of white fire and we've arrived at Breshis again. Out of beginnings, right? Out of beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so with that in mind, I want to share some precious teachings with you. So, one of the things that uh, 
that I that I learned, and I just love this so much. So this is from I learned this from Rabbi Trugman, and it's in the the name of uh, from his book from Rav Yitzhak Ginsburg, right? Shlita, and an amazing, amazing super genius himself, and and Rabbi Ginsburg says the following. Now, it's a it's a gematria, an amazing gematria. Now, let me just set the stage for this gematria. Now, we know what's the holiest name of God. So there's no contest. It's the Yud Ke Vav Ke, right? Um, and if you were to ask me, <clears throat> when is the first time that the Yud Ke Vav Ke, God's holiest name, when is the first time does it, does it appear in the Torah? I would say, well, it's God's holiest name. It's going to appear like right away, probably, or certainly early on, right? So amazingly, amazingly, strikingly, there's only one name of Hashem that appears in the first seven days of creation, right? While the world itself is being created. And that's the name Elohim, right? I'm going to say Elohim from now on, but... But that's, that is the divine name. And maybe before we go further in this teaching, let me, um, let me pause just to, to tell you that whenever we discuss the different names of Hashem, we're only talking about God. We're only talking about the same one God. Um, and, and the example that I always like to use is that each one of us has many names. And I'll give you an example. Um, to my kids, I'm Daddy. Uh, on my birth certificate, I'm David, right? To the person who's mad at me in traffic, I'm hey you, right? <laughs> to my to my children's friends, I'm Mr. Sachs, right? To to my wife on a good day, I'm sweetheart, right? So so you see, and but we're only talking about me. So so each of us in our own lives has our own version of this, right? And 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 the different names are contingent on how am I manifesting myself in the moment. So if I'm manifesting myself in the moment as one of my children's friends, then I'm Mr. Sex, right? If I'm manifesting myself as a reckless driver, I'm hey you. But it's just, it's only me each of the times, right? So, so this is how it works in the Torah as well. God has certain divine names, but we're only talking about God. We're only talking about the one true God. But if he manifests himself in a place of love, we'll use this phraseology or the Torah. God himself uses this phraseology of Yudke Vavke, this particular name to describe himself. If God is, say, executing judgment on the wicked, then, then maybe Elohim right? Which is more of a Gavoradic name. That's more of like, you know, judgment. That, 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 that name might be used. And then on and on with the, with the different names. Okay. So, so I would imagine in terms of the introduction of the Torah, God would want to introduce himself as this name, Yudke Vavke, his highest, holiest name. So this is actually a, a longer discussion. Why, why isn't it until after the world, the physical universe is created, does God manifest himself that way? And we've discussed this in, at different points, but 
But I want to give you a, another way of approaching this um, that Rabbi Ginsburg says. Okay, so you ready for this? So Elohim, this, this, this name of Hashem, which is used in the first seven days of creation, it really is, is often translated as, as nature, as God manifesting himself through the natural order, or, or just simply nature. In fact, one of the more well-known gematrias is that Elohim is the same gematria. It's the number 86, by the way. Keep that number in mind. 86, it's the same number as Ha-Teva, which means the nature, the nature of the world, right? The natural order. Okay. So now listen to this. Rabbi Ginsburg says that this number for Elohim, 86, can actually be broken up into two numbers. You ready? 26. Now 26 is Yud-Ke-Vav-Ke. So, ah, so we got our Yud-Ke-Vav-Ke back. And that leaves the number 60, right? Because... 86, Elohim, is 26 and 60. So what does 60 stand for? 60 is the gematria of the word kli, which means vessel. Which means, let's put the whole thought together right now, that means that nature is a vessel to hold the yud Vavke. <laughs> that the natural order is a vessel that holds the infinite. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? In other words, he goes further, and that when you look into nature, you're actually able to see the infinite. Or that if you look into the natural order, contained within the natural order is the infinity of God, right? Which, of course, transcends it as well. God fills the world, and he exists dimensions beyond the world. So again, Elohim, which is God manifesting himself in nature, the word itself, Elohim, 86, is 26, that's the yud ke vav and 60, that's a kli. Nature is a kli that holds Hashem. So that's the teaching, and now I want to add to that teaching, okay? I noticed last year, that very famously, you know, we were talking about the end of the Torah at the beginning of this talk. Well, the last three words of the Torah are, are, are very famous. It's le'ene kol Yisrael, that Moshe did wonders le'ene before the eyes of all Israel. And then the Torah ends. Okay? So these last three words of the Torah. I, 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 I was looking at them last year, and I, and I realized something. That if you take the first letter of these last three words, and you rearrange them, guess what it spells? Kli, which means vessel. We were just talking about a, a kli, right? So isn't that interesting that the Torah ends with the word kli? Wow! So you get to the end of the Torah... And then the end of the Torah is this vessel holding the whole Torah. That's cool, right? But I want to apply this idea to what we just learned from Rabbi Ginsburg. That just like nature is a kli that holds Hashem, the Torah itself is a kli that holds Hashem. 
So you get to the end of the Torah and you see, wow, there's the word Kli. It's it's holding Hashem because when you look into the Torah, you see the infinity of God. It's awesome, right? Anyone who's taken the Torah seriously and is really bothered to actually try to understand it and read the commentaries and see what it says, understands that it's not, this is not a book. This is not a normal document. This is alive and it's beyond. You know, my, my favorite story, I haven't told it in a, in a long time, but, but I have to tell it again. So, so, uh, so I had been learning for a little while, you know, whatever. But I, I went to the uh, to Israelite from Rabbi David Aaron to the to the opening class in the old city. This was many many years ago, and um, Rabbi Aaron was there, and he was in front of you know a bunch of students, and he there was a blackboard there, or I think it was a whiteboard, and uh, and this is the the way the first class on the first day began. Okay. He said, okay, everyone, what's the Torah? Someone raises their hand and says, a book of laws. And he goes, excellent. And he writes down on the blackboard, a book of laws. And then he points to someone else and they say, a book of history. And he says, great. And he writes down on the blackboard, a book of history. And then I raised my hand. He says, go ahead. And I said, it's the infinite compressed into the finite. And he said, all right, let's let's hold off on that for a moment. (laughs) So, but... But that's what the Torah is. It's the infinite compressed into the finite. In other words, you get to the end of the Torah and, and it's a clee and you realize it's a clee holding the infinity of God. Okay, so let's go even deeper. So, so we know the Talmud says that the Torah existed 974 generations before the world was created. So what does that mean, right? Right? The world, the Torah existed before the world was created. You're making my brain hurt. Like, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating up in outer space. That's definitely not what it means, because there was no time or space. So how are you going to get a Torah scroll floating in the middle of space? Okay, so that's not what it means. But what does it mean? What does it mean that the Torah existed before the world was created? Well, you know, the example that I always like to think of is, you know, I I don't think that what I'm about to describe to you ever happens. Okay, maybe it's happened once or twice, but for the most part, it doesn't happen. Okay, so here's the scene. You ready? Parents busy packing their suitcases, telling their kids, hurry up, pack your suitcases. Come on, come on. We got to get to the airport. We got to get to the airport. Everyone packs their bags. You get to the airport and then you you stand in front of that massive sign with all the departures and arrivals and you say, okay, now where should we go? (laughs) No one does that. (laughs) If you're packing your suitcases and you're going on a big trip and you're taking the family, you know where you're going. Okay. In other words, before you embark on a very big thing, like, for instance, creating the world, before you embark on such an activity, you have a plan for for what you're going to do. God had a plan for the world before he created it. God had a vision, a holy vision 
for what he intended to create. And, and by the way, that plan that God had for the world before he created the world was to make a perfect world, right? And God didn't fail. Like, everyone's got the same question, which is that if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer is because the world is still in the process. We are still in the process. God made us partners with him to realize that initial vision of perfection that he had for the world before he created it. So now let's go back to God thinking about the world, envisioning the world. That was the Torah before the world was created. God's plan for the world, God's blueprint for the world was the Torah. That's what he had in mind before he created it, before he created the world. And now you want to hear something wild? God then took that thought and formed it into the physical universe. Now that thought was the Torah as it existed before the world was created. God then shaped that thought, which was the Torah, into the physical universe. That's why we can say that the mitzvot, the commandments, the mitzvahs, are the building blocks of creation. Because God had all these these mitzvot in mind, which were sort of like the, the landing points, the manifestations of all the different ideas that he was imparting into the world. That's how it could be. If you give tzedakah, why it could be that it rains? Why would doing a mitzvah make it rain? Because there's this network, this wiring of the world, where everything is connected according to the Torah. There is an infrastructure, a divine infrastructure to the world, which is the Torah and the mitzvahs. And God actually shaped the world into its present form. So when we do the Torah and when we do the mitzvahs, we're actually tapping into all these like, these like, you know, these, these key points, like, you know, in, in acupuncture, you have all these meridian points in the body, all these pressure points, where if you activate them, different things open up in the body, different channels open up. It's the same thing with the mitzvot and the world. If you do different mitzvot, you open up all these different channels within creation. Because the world itself is made out of the Torah. Okay, so now let's go back to our idea and fit, fit this into our discussion as we've been having it up until now. So what did we say? We said that the name Elohim, God as he manifests himself in nature, is actually the number 86, which is 26, the Yudke Vavke, and a Kli. Nature is a Kli that holds God. We also said that the Torah ends with the word Kli, right? The last three words, Le'ene Kol Yisrael. If you take the first letters of those last three words and rearrange them, it spells Kli. That the Torah itself is a Kli for the for God's thoughts, God's mind, so to speak, right? But now let's add to the discussion based on what we just said. The Torah 
is a kli that holds nature, right? Because the natural order was made out of Torah. So actually, the Torah isn't just something within creation. Creation is something within Torah. Isn't that wild? I'm going to say that again. So that's a mind blower, right? The Torah is not something within creation. Creation is something that was formed out of Torah. So, 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 so through the Torah, you access the entire world and you're able to commune with God. All right. Now, with this in mind, I want to share uh, another teaching. So we're kind of switching ideas right now, but, but that's okay. Uh, so something that, that, excuse me, that, 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 that struck me. And, um, and we've discussed it, Rabbi Nachman talks about it, and, and it's, it's a very, very big point. It's got to be more well-known. Everybody thinks, everybody thinks that we ate from the tree of knowledge, and that's why we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. This is what everybody thinks. And all you have to do is look into the Torah itself. And I'm not talking about any Medrash. I'm not talking about a Zohar right now. I'm not talking about anything. I'm just talking about the black and white of the Torah text itself. You'll see that it's not true. What happened was we ate from the tree of knowledge. And then we hid from God. And then we started blaming each other for what happened. And then God kicks us out of the Garden of Eden. Do you understand? If God knows that we're human beings, God knows that we make mistakes, and we do. Remember, Yom Kippur was created on the first day of creation, says, says the Medrash. Human beings are created on the sixth day of creation. Yom Kippur was created, forgiveness was created long before man was even created. In fact, Tshuva, return, was created before the world itself was created. So God knows that we're human and God knows that we make mistakes. The problem is not making the mistakes. The problem is when we don't recognize what we've done. That's the problem. And then worse, when we start blaming each other. So so what I want to zero in on here, which was, this was a, a new thought for me. It came on Shabbos. And... and and is the language of getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Okay? Because that's, that's important, wouldn't you say? And I've now seen um, two separate translations, two separate English translations. One is the Art Scroll, and it's uh, also in different editions of the Art Scroll. Uh, and uh, one is Rabbi Ari Kaplan's Living Torah, Okay, two, two wonderful English translations of the Torah. And they both use the same word. It's a super harsh word. You ready? It's banished. God banished us from the Garden of Eden. That's, you know, as speaking as a writer, banished is a very strong word. Okay? So I was curious, what's the Hebrew? Right? Because 
English, it's definitely better than nothing. <laughs> but it, it does not compare to the Hebrew, because the Hebrew allows you to access all the multiple meanings of a word simultaneously. And of course, the Torah is functioning on so many different levels at the same time. The problem is, is that English or any translation of the Torah, the, the way the sages put it, when, when the Torah was translated into Greek, the Septuagint it was called, they called it putting a lion in a cage. The lion was the Torah and it was caged because you cut down all the multiple levels of meaning and, 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 and kind of imprison them in an English word or another word. You know, one of the most kind of like heart-rending things I ever heard, I don't speak Yiddish, I don't speak Hebrew either, by the way, but, um, but I have an appreciation of it at least. Um, I heard Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita uh, speaking before a group, and, um, and he said, you know, I'm going to be saying over this uh, speech, this uh, Torah lesson in English, he says, I rarely speak Torah in English. He usually does it in Yiddish. And it was so moving. He apologized to the Torah that he was about to say that it was about to be spoken in English. Can you imagine? So, so anyway, the word in English is banished. But let me give you the Hebrew word. And if you want to look this up, by the way, it's in um, it's in Breshis, Genesis chapter three, verse twenty-three. Okay, ve'yishalchehu. Okay, that's how you that's how you say it in Hebrew. Um, and what I realized was this word um, is the same word as uh, a shaliach. Now, a shaliach is a messenger. Like in the Chabad, for instance, you have what's called shluchim. Now, shluchim are very honored emissaries of the Rebbe, and they go into communities all over the world in order to spread the light and to teach Torah. So there's a debate. Let's put this into context now. There's a debate among the rabbis about whether we actually had any free choice in terms of eating from the tree of knowledge or not. Now, of course, one of the cardinal tenets of Judaism is that we do have free will. It says it very clearly in Pirkei Avos, and we're responsible for our actions, and we have free will, 100%. Okay. That being the case, though, there is a school of thought among the rabbis, and this is in the Medrash, which is that the whole eating of the eight sadas from the tree of knowledge was a divine setup and that God fully intended us to eat from the tree. And the rabbis go further. They give you actually a, a, a bit of imagery to, to, to connect with the events of eating from the tree and being exiled. And what they compare it to is a woman serves a drink to her husband and she spills it on him and uh, I, I think unintentionally, um, and the man immediately reaches in his pocket and pulls out a get, a bill of divorce. And the question is, where did you get that from so quickly? 
You're 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 walking around with a with a with a bill of divorce in your pocket? Like clearly this all these events were orchestrated just so that you could produce this. In fact, the Medrash goes on that says that since the Torah existed, as we mentioned earlier, before the world was even created, it says God warns Adam and Chava, God, God warns them, if you eat from the tree of knowledge, you'll bring death into the world. And yet, the Torah, as it's written, talks about death already existing. That if a person enters into a tent where someone has died, what are the laws of Tuma and Tahara? In other words, these ritual, these ritual laws where you're not allowed to come into contact with the dead. And these are considered some of the most complex laws of the entire Torah. Like, what becomes ritually impure inside the tent if someone dies in the tent? Everything like this. So in other words, this already existed in the Torah, and the Torah already existed before the world was created. So how can you say we brought death in the world by eating from the tree if the Torah already existed and is already talking about death? This is what the rabbis want to know. It must mean that death was already in the world, which means we were already supposed to eat. Okay. So, by the way, I want to say an aside, but this this sort of blows my mind. Um, I haven't seen this written in any book, but, but, you know, human beings were created on the sixth day of creation. And so here's my question. How is it possible that Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge? How is it possible that 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 we win against God. And I want to say the following, because Shabbos hadn't been created yet. Shabbos was only created on the seventh day. You see, the famous Medrash, Sunday is soulmates with Monday, and Tuesday is soulmates with Wednesday, and Thursday is soulmates with Friday. And and by the way, how can you, you have seven days of the week, so that's an odd number. Someone's going to be left out in the cold. So Shabbos is, is the odd man out, right? Shabbos says to Hashem, who will be my soulmate? And God says, your soulmate will be the Jewish people. So on Shabbos, we become the fullest aspects of ourselves. So perhaps I'd like to suggest This is how it was possible for us to go against God and eat from the tree of knowledge. Because Shabbos hadn't been created yet. We hadn't gotten our soulmate yet. We hadn't become the fullest realized versions of ourself yet. And so we didn't have the strength to completely completely connect with God on the fullest level yet. You know, it says when a, when a man and woman get married in, in Judaism, that all of their sins are forgiven, leading up to their wedding. And, and, and part of this comes from the realization that, that, that you know why you did wrong? Because you weren't your fullest, most complete version of yourself yet. So, so we see that being played out in the Garden of Eden as well. Shabbos hadn't been created yet. And by the way, 
you have to know something about Shabbos, a very important teaching about Shabbos. And is that imagine a carpet all rolled up and you roll out the carpet. That's the first six days of, of creation. Time and space, the first six days are one, one entity. But Shabbos is a special independent creation of time and space. When Shabbos comes, you literally go into a different dimension. It's a seamless transition, but you actually go someplace else. It's, it's made out of something else. On the sixth day, God creates man, and then God gets even higher. He creates woman, right? This is one of the places that we learn that women are spiritually higher than men because they were created after man. So we're going up and up and up. And then one more thing is created, Shabbos. Shabbos is the crown of creation. Okay, so, so, so that's what it is. Um, we get we get banished, but maybe that banishment was was the plan all along. According to this way of understanding it, and this is not me talking. This is our our rabbis talking in the medrash. Maybe it was the plan all along. And now we can see the depths of this word that has the word shaliach in it. That it's not that we were being banished necessarily, but now the time had begun to actually begin our true mission. (laughs) To be shluchim, to be messengers of God's light in the darkness. And with that, I just want to wrap it up just to to end it and tell you something um, just so strong. So, so this is in the, the name of the, the, the base Avraham, that, that, that God says, like, looks at the darkness in the beginning of creation, he says, let there be light. And, and why did God do that? So that we should have the strength that when any of us in our lives see darkness in the world, that we ourselves should be able to say, Vayahi, or let there be light. That we should be shluchim of God, messengers, to go into the exile, to go into the darkness, to go into the exile of the Shekhinah, and to light it up with Torah, and to light it up with mitzvahs, and to see every time we look at the world that it's just a vessel holding the infinity of Hashem, so that we should know that everything actually is miraculous and that behind informing all the miraculousness is the Holy Torah itself. And that when we tap into that, we tap into all that we see around us in universes beyond and that we commune and we become one with God himself. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.